Welcome everybody. From all around the world. Welcome to this podcast. Escaping the entanglements of our lives. You got yours. And I've got mine. I'm your host, I'm Dolphus Q, I'm the originator and the creator of this podcast, which was inspired by Toastmasters Project, and I want to give a shout out to all the Toastmasters who may be listening, (laughs) and I hope you are. Yours and mine's are easily entangled in things real and imaginary. Some things are easy to get into but difficult to get out of. <laughs> you know, there's a simple trap. It's a rectangle, but so wide and so, so long. It's made out of wire, and at one end of the cage, food is put in, basically this trap catches furry animals like raccoons and possums. Well, the animal goes in and gets the food, and the door at the other end slams shut. The animal (laughs) is physically trapped. Your entanglements, our entanglements, can trap us. And just as the raccoon and the possum (laughs) is trapped in their cage, their escape requires an intervention. And usually that intervention is human hands. But in our case, (laughs) in case of our own entanglements, I believe only we ourselves can free ourselves from our entanglements. Because our entanglements exist in the webs of our own minds. Freedom is within. Freedom becomes an individual path. Now the path I chose may not work for you, but it may help someone else. And this podcast is the detangling of one of the major entanglements of my life. I call it writing. The idea of wanting to be a writer, becoming a writer, got entangled in my mind. Years ago, I have invested a lot of time and money. I can't put a number to the toes. But it has been an investment. An investment into writing. That has not has not paid off, but that is not 
to say that it will not. But unless this project is a success, it will not fail. That's why, from all around the world, I need your help. From all around the world, I want you to subscribe to this podcast. And not only that, I want you to tell your friends to subscribe to this podcast. Escaping the entanglements of our lives. Now I can be reached at DolphusQ at Yahoo.com or you can turn it around QDolphus at gmail.com <laughs> Either way, it will get to me. I want to hear from you. Let me know what you think as I continue reading and writing my book at the same time. And now, For the reading of episode number three, chapter three, the best laid plan often fails. I have found a new place to dwell. At the start of Harrison Street, at a place called the Harrison Hotel. I live in a room on the 11th floor. 1126 marks the door. I am greeted by a double hung window without a view and two closed doors as I enter the room. I can see all I own but what is hidden behind the closed doors, in the drawers, and under the bed. My Underwood typewriter, my writing tablets, my composition notebooks with the spotted, with the sparrow backs and black and white covers, a growing stack of New York Times book reviews, clock radio, guitar, coffee pot, books and a copy of an original painting by Winslow Homer. He named the painting the Gulf Screen. I found it at a thrift store. The painting is a seascape and depicts a shirtless black man stranded at sea on the deck of a wrecked ship boat. The boat is in rough waters, surrounded by a band of vicious sharks. And on the horizon, a funnel cloud has formed. The painting hangs on the wall above his double bed 
where I rest my head. The next four months were a blur of events, centered around struggling to write, working in the cafeteria to survive, and a woman of interest. As September approached, and I hadn't received word from the University of Chicago, I called the Office of Admissions. Worried and frustrated. Sir, I understand your frustration, the woman said over the phone, sounding frustrated herself. But I cannot help you. Your application is no longer in this office. It was forwarded to the Office of Registration months ago. I don't know how many applications are ahead of yours, but my suggestion is to sit tight and wait. After that interlude, I resigned to wait, but refused to sit tight. I concocted what I thought was a great idea. I would do what Walt Whitman had done. Walt Whitman, a poet, an essayist, and journalist, had self-published Leaves of Grass, his collections of poems, and sold copies of the book door-to-door. My plan was simple. I would get up at 4 o'clock every day, every morning, and write. I would do this, I would do that for 60 days, then codify the results into a manuscript and publish it myself. I named my great idea the 60-day writing plan, August 28, 1979, underline. A 60-day writing plan. One, get up and write every morning before the sun rise. Two, write at least 500 words a day. Three, read at least 1,000 words per day. B, what to write. One, journal entries. Two, essays. Three, sketches like those written by Stephen Crane before he achieved literary fame for his book, Red Badge of Courage. C. Writing Timetable. 1. August 29 to September 29. 2. September 29 to October 29. 3. October 29. Select from writings. 4. November 30. Publishes something. September 1. 1979, underline. This is the third day of my 60-day writing plan. In 57 days, I will have a collection of essays, and I will be a habitual writer. This habit will spur the completion of my first novel, Gainesville Green. This collection of essays Will be, self will be a self-publishing venture and serve as an introduction to a new writer in Chicago. September 11th, 1979, underline. This morning, as I prepare to take to the streets of Chicago, a whisper becomes louder, a whisper calling the name of a crying woman who swore to 
her tears. One day you will miss this clanging band. Her words have prevailed. I am ready to kneel and admit I need the intimacy of a woman, but I will not allow this need for intimacy to prevent me from progressing towards my goal, if I can help it. Not even a coat of Teflon will prevent me from sticking to my 60-day writing plan. As it stands now, I'm a few days behind, but still at least I am working on the plan. I work on the first floor of the Lawson YMCA in the cafeteria. It did not take long for me to master the demands of the job I was required to do. Keep the dining room supplied with clean dining utensils, plates, saucers, cups, glasses, and silverware. It was critical to keep up during the busiest times in the dining room, breakfast and lunch. To keep up with the man, I often had to help the waitresses bus tables and clearing deserted tables. I saw the same people every morning as I moved through the dining room clearing deserted tables. They sat at the same tables in the same chairs with little variation. They sat in groups, in pairs, or alone. They were older and reminded me of someone's grandparents. Then I always saw folks from the fringes. They appeared every morning as soon as the manager opened the door. They always looked like losers or loners who had been up all night looking for something they had failed to find. They sat like schemers with their head down and spoke in low voices when they sat in pairs or in groups. But when they sat alone and talked to themselves or someone invisible, any of those loners were prone to shout out like mad prophets in the wilderness about the closeness of doom and the urgency of now. No diners paid any attention to such outbreaks of madness unless it was deemed a threat. Then the security guard would be called and the loner would be escorted from the dining room, sometimes shouting every foot of the way to the revolving door. The price of the food in the cafeteria was the lowest in the area, and coffee at 25 cents a cup drew all sorts of folk into the dining room, some who did not appear to have anything else to do but stare into a cup of coffee and talk to themselves or yell out loud at their invisible tormentors. Tor <laughs> tormentors. In the beginning, I was shocked and stared in disbelief. I had heard about the folks from the fringes, the alcoholics, the drug addicts, the 
queer queens, the prostitutes, the skid row bums, winos, and weirdos, but I hadn't seen them from afar, never at such close range. Bussing tables in the dining room taught me to maintain a stoic expression and to stare at no faces as I moved throughout the dining room, clearing deserted tables. The most I ever said was, excuse me, as I hurried to another table. One morning, as I hurriedly cleared a table, I noticed a woman seated alone in a secluded section of tables. She was writing into a tablet, a composition tablet exactly like the ones I used. I had never seen her before and automatically assumed, assumed she was a transit guest of the hotel, only in town for a short while. Between bites of her breakfast, she would gaze up and then started writing into the tablet again. The next morning, she was at the same table doing the same thing, writing. I saw her every morning after that. I never saw her arrive, nor did I see her saw see her leave. I only saw her seated at the table writing into the tablet. The regularity of this sighting of her writing inspired curiosity within my mind. I had read that Ernest Hemingway often wrote in restaurants when he lived in Paris. Was she a writer? working on a book in seclusion in the in the seclusion of the Lawson YMCA. This foolish fantasy fanned the fame flames of my imagination. Every morning as I followed my sixty day writing plan. Then one Monday morning, the day after the last day of a convention at Moody Bible Institute, the dining room was closed to capacity. I struggled to keep up with the silverware at the dishwasher. I had no time to help bus tables, but in the den of the replenishing the dining utensils and washing and the washing of dishes, I did get a glimpse of her at the table writing. When the morning rush was over, I began bussing tables again. She was still there writing in a tablet. Around her was at least five writing tables to be cleared. This was a this is it moment. I chose to clear the table closest to where she sat. She seemed unaware of my presence as if she was lost in the flow of what she was doing. Excuse me, ma'am, I said. I hate to interlude, but my curiosity has overpowered me. Every morning, I have seen you sitting at that table writing. Now, I write myself, and I am wondering, are you a writer or something like that? She looked up at me, surprised, slightly startled by this sudden intrusion. Well, I write songs, she smiled. Songs, I said. You write songs? Have you sold any? Sure, she said, rocking her head confidently. You may have heard some of my songs. Are you familiar with the Staple Singers? 
Indeed, I was familiar with the gospel group. My eyes stretched wide. The staple singles, singers sang some of your songs? Sure, she rocked her head with confidence. I am Margot Staples. October 25th, 1979, underline. Dear Margot, I know it has only been a few weeks since I met you, but in that short span of time, I have been caught up in the rapture of being with you. But sadly, I now write of the rapture's darkest moment. The moment you tossed me from your room, that was a toss from romanticism to realism for me. Unlike you, I'm not all business and wouldn't argue against being called a full-time romantic. There lies the chief concern of this letter, my romanticized feelings about you. Margot, I tremble as I begin because I cannot pinpoint a beginning. I was simply hypnotized and found myself becoming more and more enchanted with you as you shared your songs with me. It was such a joy to watch you write, to see you struggle for the right rhyme of words. I began to see myself in you and to see a woman I wanted to take in my arms and completely love. But the realism you tossed me into ripped such thoughts roughly from my mind. Now, for the sake of my own sanity, I must accept what fate has decreed. However, still I remain in love with the memory of being with you. I know mine is an impossible love that will never be consummated, but still I hope for a last-minute miracle in my romanticized mind, love forever, Dolphus. November 28, 1979, underline. I am now without funds. Last night I did something stupid. It is hard to fathom how I allowed myself to be tricked by a woman with a sad story to tell. But this too will pass. Now, on the morning after, I lie in bed with empty pockets. I feel like I was used up and then tossed into the toilet. I am certainly not in the mood for love this morning, and it would have been best had I not been in such a mood last night. It is strange how reality sometimes shocks when it is brought up close to the eyes. November 29, 1979, underline. What's the matter with you, boy? You seem to be locked behind an invisible wall that does not exist. Yet you fear to step beyond the border of that invisible, non-existent wall which separates you from the joys of humanity. Fear, a cold, hard interfere, keeps you in check. 
How you made it this far is beyond my ability to wonder. I can only paraphrase the prophet Ezekiel who said in the valley of dry bones, God only you know the answer. Admit it, you are a loner, a lone wolf howling at a new moon. Look in the mirror, admit to yourself you know absolutely nothing. What lies ahead for you, boy? Only God knows. November 30th, 1979, underline. My 60-day writing plan was not a huge success. I did not publish anything. I may never publish anything. Dust collects on the keys of my underwood. And thus ends episode three. I ask you to join us again next Thursday for another exciting episode of Escaping the Entanglement of Our Lives. Please join us again and don't forget to subscribe. Thank you. And this is Dolphus Q saying goodbye to everybody all around the world.